Julian and uh, welcome to our third podcast. And I'm going to start with some very encouraging news. I want to give a name check to what I, Quint, I suspect it's something to do with Quentin. But let me tell you, his commendation for the podcast was, it was just like Letter from America. Now, big fan of Letter from America by Alistair Cook in my formative years. And I was very pleased that I told my team, hey, we've had this commendation, Letter from America. And they looked at me blankly. Never heard of it. And worse, Julian, my daughter trying to help me said, yes, he was a famous cricket player, wasn't he, Dad? <laughs> Quinton, thank you for the name check, but that went, that went a little bit. The second big piece of news on the podcast is that we had over 100 downloads from Buzzsprout. I don't know about you, Julian, but I thought it was a really good number. It's a good start. Let's see if we can get to 200 and then we'll go on from there. So this week, Julian, we're going to talk about LA. We're going to talk about drink driving and the age you can drive. And we're going to talk about Meghan and Harry. So do you want to kick us off on on LA? I've been to LA maybe half a dozen times. I like the things that I've done there, but I don't like the place very much. And I certainly wouldn't live there. That's how I feel about it. We've all seen so many movies which LA features. So we're all familiar with the roads, the buildings, the vistas. And one of the great things about going to LA is that everything seems very familiar. And of course, it's nice and warm most of the time and the lovely palm trees as well. So that's really how I feel about it. Do you have a different view? I'm quite opinionated on it. It's not the place. I think it's getting around the place which is a real problem. There's virtually no public transport. It's all by cars. And you bump and bump most of the time. So I found it a little frustrating. But you said there were places you liked or things you said. So what are your memories or highlights of going to L.A.? Well, I feel that L.A. isn't really one place. It's a, really a selection of 50 or so very large towns, which are all proximate to each other. I like the beaches, obviously. So Santa Monica and, and, and the pier there. I had a very nice time there with your wife once, actually. We enjoyed the pier and the, and the various different amusements there. Venice Beach, Malibu, and it's a great beach in Malibu where Rockford Files was filmed. Paradise Cove. That's another one for Generation so, C. So, so can, I, can I just interrupt for a second, Julian, about beaches? Because I, I, I want to spring this on you. A couple of times I, I, I've been in LA or, or driven up the, up the coast. Sand on the sea looks really good. But there's things I don't tell you. So Redondo Beach. Stay there, beach hotel. You're next to a plow plant. Morro Bay. Great view, you next to a power plant. So these beaches you just mentioned, how many have got a power plant? Well, they've got big energy problems in uh, California, so they probably need those uh, power plants. There are some without. If you go down further south to places like Newport Beach and Balboa Island, those are terrific places. But I agree, there's quite a few which are close to the LAX airport as well. That's one of the things that you get in living in uh, or going to a beach in such a, a big, busy city. The beaches? I do like the beaches, and I think there's quite a variety of them. Of course, they're fairly familiar because we have, again, we've seen them in the movies. I love all the connections with the movies in LA. really enjoy traveling around in Hollywood Hills and going to see Stars Houses in Beverly Hills. 
I enjoy going to the movie studios. So I don't know whether you've done that, Michael, but I think we've now been to all of the movie studios. And Warner Brothers would be my preferred movie tour. I love going to the movies in LA. Uh, it's a terrific experience sitting down, watching a movie with other people who care as passionately about movies as I do. I love the way at the end of a movie, everyone stays for the credits. When they see somebody's name that they know, they burst into applause. And they've got some terrific movie theatres as well. So I like that. I think it's not really my thing, but they've got a couple of good amusement parks in Universal and Disney. And there's a whole range of other things that I've enjoyed there. I enjoyed the Griffith Observatory, which was featured in La La Land. The Getty Center has you know, some of the world's greatest artifacts. It's a little bit too polished for me, but it's, it's undeniably got some of the world's greatest historical artifacts. And there are some great hikes that you can take in the Hollywood Hills or in the canyons. Yeah, what, what did I miss out, which I should do next time I go? Well, I am going to bring you to Long Beach and the Queen Mary. But before I do, let's go back to movies, because yes, I have done the movie tour. I'm struggling to remember the name of the, the, the studio, but I do recall it was the people who were producing Friends. Right, that's Warner Brothers. I think that's my favourite movie tour. Okay. I think it was... Uh, did, did you enjoy it? I did. And we went on the final week of the last episode of Friends. So we saw the Coffee Burger, whatever it's called. And yep, it was a good one. So that's that one. The second thing, we, we, we did the very touristing. We went in the tourist van and they took us round Hollywood. Um, stopped at the very place that Hugh Grant and the Lady of the Night had their, um, how shall we say, uh, intimate conversation. Was her name Divine Brown by it, any it chance? It was, was Divine Brown. Name? And they literally pulled into the parking space to show you, show you this, uh, so, which I thought was, mm-hmm. was odd, but there we are. And then we also saw a film in the Chinese theatre. And, and I know you love films, and you're right, it was truly a, a great experience to see a film in the Chinese theatre. They don't have just one theatre, which is exceptional. They've got half a dozen, which are truly special places, which should be, in their own right, visited as great destinations in addition to the film. Yeah, yeah so Chinese theatre is good. Hollywood is it's a little bit run down, isn't it? You have this impression that Hollywood is full of riches, and but actually the area of Hollywood is not entirely safe, is it? No. Well, what they pointed out, if I may say, was... Toilets that George Michael went in, or where somebody died of drugs on on the street, or where uh, Haley Berry had hit somebody in a car crash on drugs. So, so it was a bit sort of you know um, <laughs> incidental to the place. It was who's made it infamous. But I actually, I thought it, I thought it was quite interesting that they pitched it that way. Yes. Okay. So, so you like going to the cinemas there, and I agree that I think it's a highlight. And you know, obviously, everyone is going to go to Hollywood and. And see the stars on the floors representing the achievements of the movie stars and people in the movie industry going back since the invention of film. What else have you do enjoy? Well, I was going to say something that uh, those of you listening, you'll realise Julian, I put lots of preparation into this. So I know he has not visited this place. We drove over to Long Beach, took forever. It's 25 miles, allow two to three days to get there and saw... And last week, you remember, we talked about things that, that the Americans had exported to the UK. Well, this was the occasion of what Bonnie Scotland from the River Clyde had exported to the US. 
the Queen Mary. The holder of the gold ribbon, a blue ribbon, not a gold ribbon, from the UK to the US, uh, which is now a floating hotel and definitely worth a visit if you want to look at Edwardian grandeur on the cruise ships. Okay, and you can stay on this cruise ship, is that right? You can. I'm not sure I'd want to. I mean, maybe it's faded grandeur, but it's definitely worth a visit going around. Okay, and um, anything else that you would recommend we visit? My list of four... Were, oh, of course, I have forgotten. We need to go back to the railway station, don't we? Uh, we mentioned in episode one, host this year's um, Oscars. My facts tell me, built in 1939, the largest railway terminal in the US, and in an Art Deco style. And again, you haven't been there, have you, Julian? Because you don't like travelling by trains. No, no, it's not that I don't like travelling by trains, it's just inconvenient. I actually enjoy travelling by train. So uh, next time I'm, I'm in LA, you're saying I should go to both the Queen Mary and to see the Grand Central. Is it called Grand Central Station? Is same as New York, or is it... Union Station. I think it's called Union Station. Union Station. Station. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But definitely those two should be on your list. Excellent. And also should go and see some baseball, is that right? Well, you know, I, I love my baseball. Um, actually, I didn't see baseball in LA. I did see it in San Francisco, but not in LA. Okay, well, that's good. You were saying earlier on that one thing you don't like about LA is the traffic, and, and I have to say I agree with you that there's no alternative for most things other than getting in a car, but every car journey is very long, and as you say, you're, you tend to be bumper to bumper with the car in front. And of course, you're on roads which are terrible, full of potholes. Yeah. And, and as we talked last week about the need to improve the infrastructure, now, and I don't, I know we're going to move on to cars and driving, but it strikes me they have a problem in that the number of people driving cars is always going to increase, the number of cars is always going to increase, and the infrastructure supporting it is poor. Uh, so, you know, if you don't get people off the cars, it's going to take you a long time to get anywhere in LA, I suspect. And what about homelessness? Have you seen that when you've been in LA? It's one of those abiding memories of, of my trips to any metropolitan area in the States. So I'm not going to say it's worse than anywhere else. I, I think you and I have talked about, for example, San Diego. It, it's a problem. The healthcare system is such that you have a lot of people on the streets who are in need of mental health care. I suspect that quite rightly they're attracted to the inner cities because of tourists, people, food, war- they're all naturally warmer than out of town. And so consequently, there's a real problem. Um, and it's not going away anytime soon, I suspect. Unlike San Francisco, I think in LA, you can, you know, as a tourist, you're not necessarily faced with it. There are plenty of places you go to where you will not see homeless people. But then there are other places like Venice Beach, where the problem is just I- incredibly evident. Yeah. Now, have you ever had a business meeting in LA, Michael? I can't say I have. Oh, I, I've had a business meeting in Rondondo Beach. Met one of my partners in the hotel there, if that counts. And was it different from normal, or was it a normal meeting? Normal meeting in, in a hotel, sort of nice lounge restaurant area. Because the other thing that I don't care for so much in, in LA is, and I hate to say it in this particular way, but it's the people they do come across as pretty ungenuine and no more so than at a business meeting. All the cliches that you see in films, you know, we must do business together and and then you never hear from them again. 
people will say things and they won't mean what they say in any way. It's just something which they say at business meetings. And you think that's specific to LA, do you? Uh... I do, yeah. I think that is uh, very specific to LA and, and possibly quite specific to to the entertainment industry because LA is so dominated. I know it has a little bit of a startup culture, but it's so dominated by the entertainment industry that there's quite a large group of people who are as, as they look on, uh, on the films about LA. And I imagine it's quite a difficult place to genuinely make friends. That would be my guess. Everyone's after some advantage from, from meeting you rather than just having friendship. If somebody had not been to LA, would you recommend that they go to LA? Yes, but with a health warning in the sense that if you go to LA, understand it, it's a really big place and it takes you a long time to get around there. So if you think you're going to do Long Beach in the morning and after Hollywood in the afternoon, you're never going to, it's never going to happen. Yeah, and actually the last two or three times that I've been there on vacation, I've had three different places that we've stayed just to try and minimise that traffic issue. Yeah, I think it's a good strategy. I would say that LA, if you haven't been, then you should go. I think there are some marvellous things which are there. I would be interested to see how many people would want to live there after having visited for a couple of weeks. I suspect it wouldn't be all that high. So our next subject comes from Sarah Burgess, and I'd like to thank her for this question. It's a fairly simple question. Why can you drive at 16 but not drink until 21? So, Michael, any views on this? Well, I suppose I'm looking for you to give me some evidence as to the answer to that question, because I'm a bit perplexed because, you know, to, to be honest, it seems very odd that you separate you, you, you the two, that you can drive a vehicle at 16 but you can't drink. It's, surely it should be either or both. You should either be able to drink and drive at, tw- at 16 or drink at 21 and drive at 21. Well, it's a simple question, but it's quite a complicated answer. Uh, so what I want to do is just set out some facts about how it came to be, and then we can have a discussion once we've uh, listened to those facts. So you'll hear me say in most episodes of this podcast that most government power belongs with states and counties, not at the federal level. And that's true for these areas as well. Actually, in the statement, you can drive at 16, is not actually true in the US. There are multiple different ages that you can drive depending on the state that you're in. So, for example, if you are in one of the nine New England states, you can drive only when you're 16. If you are from Georgia or Florida, the states that I used to live in and now now live in, that age is 15. And there are nine rural states where you can drive from the age of 14. And that is just each individual state. They have responsibility for all laws connected with driving. And they've decided, you know, independently that they're going to have slightly different dates. So in many cases, in in some places in the US, you're going to have 14-year-olds who are driving cars. For my children, they started driving when they were 15, uh, and I taught them to drive. And then at the age of 16, I bought them both a car. So that's the norm, the average. 
On the alcohol side, the laws again are state laws, but there is one historical anomaly. So obviously in the 1920s and the 1930s, there was prohibition of alcohol, of consumption and sale of alcohol, sorry, sale of alcohol in the 1920s and 30s. You weren't able to drink alcohol at all, no matter what age you were. And then when they got rid of prohibition, different states had different ages for drinking alcohol. This led in the 1970s to a huge problem of drunk driving. The federal government decided that they wanted to do something about this. So what they mandated was that there was a minimum age of 21. And if the states didn't adhere to that, they would withhold 10% of the federal grants to interstate roads. Because that is rather a lot of money, eventually all the states complied with that. And now all the states have the same age of purchasing alcohol of 21. That has led to this apparent paradox that an 18-year-old can drive a car, they can fight in a war, they can get $60,000 worth of student debt, but they can't have a drink. But it's not quite as simple as that either. The reality is that most people between the age of 18 and 21, or especially sort of student populations, most of those individuals will have a fake ID. You can purchase the fake IDs via various different sites on the internet, and some Chinese company will, for $100, they will provide you with a couple of fake IDs. So the reality is, at least from college age, if not slightly before, most 18 to 21-year-olds will indeed be able to purchase alcohol because they will have a fake ID. The state laws on alcohol don't just relate to age. They will also relate to where you can buy alcohol. In most cases, if you went to a grocery store, there are four states which won't allow you to buy beer in a a grocery store, 11 states that won't allow you to buy wine. I think there are 30 which don't allow you to buy um, hard liquor. Counties will define when you can buy it. There are about 100 counties that are dry counties, which won't allow you to purchase alcohol in that county. There are counties which don't allow you to buy alcohol on a Sunday. And then finally, how you buy it is regulated as well. In Georgia, if you went into a grocery store, you will be asked for your ID, even though it's patently obvious you're over 21. In other states, that will be policed much more likely. And then finally, in most cases, if you buy alcohol, they'll put it in a brown paper bag. And the rationale for that is? Tell us a slight story. I mean, you've seen American graffiti, yeah, Julian? Yes. Okay, so you remember when he's trying to buy his illicit alcohol and he keeps propositioning people uh, and no one will do it. And eventually the person who does it for him says, certainly, sir, runs in and then suddenly runs out, throws in the alcohol in the brown paper bag. He's just robbed the liquor store. Right, yeah. I don't know what the rationale for it is. It's a stupid rationale because everyone knows what's in that brown paper bag, but uh, people can't openly see that you're buying alcohol. I mean, it's an interesting thing on hard alcohol. My my, um, wife, who's who's a keen alcoholic, sorry, who's a connoisseur of uh, alcoholic beverages, she used to be quite keen on her liquors. In the States, mostly, in most states, you cannot buy liquor in a, a grocery store and you have to go to a special store called a, a package store. And she finds that type of environment a little bit seedy. 
So really, for the last 10 years, she has done very little in the way of drinking hard alcohol, hard liquor. Mm. And you have to remember, there was a reason why US brought in prohibition. In the early days of the US, they drank unbelievable amounts of alcohol. Prohibition stopped that bad habit. Now, although obviously they can drink alcohol again, they drink much lower levels of alcohol than almost every country in Europe. Okay. But turning to the fact of you, you put the two together, what is the age at which you can drive and the age at which you can drink? Is there any evidence to support the fact that by allowing young drivers but not allowing them to drink, the roads are safer? Because in the UK, what we always know is that the, the highest level of death rates of cars typically, or before I did my research, is with, with young people. I think the, the stat that I showed you is something like um, last year, 488 people were killed between the ages of 0 and 15, and only 426 between 16 and 59. As an aside, I should ask the greatest number was anyone over 59, over 2,222 people. So the older they get, the more dangerous we are in cars. Yeah, so the evidence actually goes back to the 1970s when they introduced this minimum age of 21. That actually did lead to a a 50% reduction in death rates on the road. Old evidence, but clearly this policy did work in the late 1970s. My stat for the UK is, over the same period between 1975 and 2021, the death rates between the 16 to 21 has fallen by 73%. Is it this question that the next generation are much more careful driving cars? I don't know. I haven't seen any data in the US which would tell me one way or the other. I know that fewer younger people are getting their driving licenses. Something in Generation Z, there's something a little bit conservative about them. They are applying for driving licenses in smaller numbers than in, than, than in previous times. But that, there's probably a whole combination of factors related to that, related to concern for the environment, the fact that public transport in, in some places has got better, so you don't need your own car. In, in the UK, Julie, you, you may, may be aware, the BBC News has a feature called The First 100 Days or The First 90 Days, and it related initially to Donald Trump's presidency, but they've kept the programme going, and that means really for an hour a night, we have a conversation about what's happening in the States see what's happening in the UK. And interestingly, last night was around G7's meeting in Cornwall and this desire of G7 to increase activity around conservation and energy. And what was quoted, and interesting to get your view, that young Republicans are significantly in favour of green agenda. That classically older Republicans, more be the Donald Trump stamp, no, we don't believe this, we don't go that way. But they were saying, the, the political commentators, that within the Republican Party, there is definitely a, say, a younger generation, for them it's an issue, and want to do something about it. Which may, again, reinforce your point around younger people not taking out their driving licences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can talk about environmental issues, you know, on another podcast. Clearly in America, you know, most people favour some form of, of action in this area. And obviously the younger ones more so. Many older people have the, have the same concerns. The original question from Sarah Burgess. So first of all, thank you, Sarah, for asking the question. We encourage uh, any other listeners to ask any other similar questions. Why can you drive at 16 but not drink until 21? 
to my mind, is probably quite a good idea if people don't drink and drive. So I don't think that necessarily uh, they should be the same age. And the reason is that uh, each individual state makes its own choices apart from in the case of drinking, which was kind of mandated via the back door uh, by the federal government. So let me put you on the spot, Julian. On that. So, so what, what I think, and you've openly admitted it, that it's not uncommon for youngsters in the States to have fake ID, i.e. to buy alcohol before they are 21. And it's what they all do. And yes. so do we think they have the same disregard for driving laws, i.e. do they drink and drive? Or do they, they adhere to one law but to another? And that begs the question, why would they do that? For my own children, I'm pretty certain that they would never drink and drive. First of all, the penalties are quite severe if you do drink and drive. And secondly, you could hurt or kill somebody. Those people with a brain can realise that it's not good to mix the two. There are all sorts of rules that are imposed on us, and some of those rules we choose to break. And I guess there's some form of analysis which goes on when we choose to adhere to a rule or not. Not being able to drink until you're 21, when everyone else around you is drinking, seems like a silly rule. But drinking and driving seems like a very sensible rule. So you wouldn't adhere to the first one, but you would adhere to the second one. That strikes me as quite logical. But of course, we know that if you're drinking, judgment gets suspended. And hence the reason, I say, ask anyone sober where you drink and drive, no. Ask somebody who's had three pints of bitter and drink and drive, mm, not the same answer. But good debate, Julian, good debate. Julian, um, I need to share something with you. Every time I go to America, and it doesn't matter where I am, you know, cities, rural, seaside, mountains, I'll be talking to, to somebody and they'll hear the accent. Do you know what is the first thing they ask me, Julian? They ask me something about the royal family. So what do you think about the Queen? Uh, so, uh, is Prince Charles happy? Uh, will he make a good king? And latterly, Meghan and Harry. Julian, why, why do you think that is? First of all, let me say, somebody who lives here and has conversations with lots of Americans and has an obvious British accent, yeah, the royal family is the thing which most people open with. And I think it's probably caused by the fact that there's a lot of press coverage here on the royal family. If you go into your US news app, very regularly, one of the top three or top five stories will be something connected with the royal family. So this week, as an experiment, I went onto the app and, and there was a story about a woman and man who had had a baby. And there was another story about a woman and a man who were complaining that they should be getting more money from their parents. You know, which both of those stories seem to me like non-stories. But of course, in both cases, they're stories because they involve the royal family. There's a lot in the press on the royal family. And I guess that some people are pretty interested. At least over the last few months, the conversations I've had, I, um, people have said, well, what do I think of Meghan? Which is a difficult question for me, because I'm not particularly well versed in the royal family. Low level of interest, really, in them. I could not name the children of William or Harry, for example. The other thing, reason it's quite difficult is the concept of monarchy is quite a difficult thing to explain. 
So unless the person I'm talking to has watched, say, The Crown, being able to explain why somebody gets to be king or queen because of who they happen to be born to is quite a strange concept. People expect you to agree with that concept because you're British. We're getting a very complex area, Julian, so <clears throat> I'm going to try to sort of make slightly light of it. So I think one of the issues is is, is this issue about the aristocracy. And I'm, I'm very much in your camp. You know, what I like about America is that you judge on what you've achieved, not what you've right. been given. So is, is that... I still don't think, though, it explains the interest. In in the UK, there is no doubt that the royals sell papers, you know. And, and by the way, we're moving away from papers. So it's sort of interesting that they get so much press, and whether it's good, bad or indifferent. But traditionally, it's because it's made people money. We have to say that Meghan being American, that was a big issue for the UK press and, dare I say, the UK establishment. And we know well from her interview on opera, the comment about the colour of her baby caused a great furore. Yeah. That interview, apparently, according to some data I saw, uh, 70% of Americans saw some or all of that interview. Yeah, 70%. That's considerable interest. Yeah. And, and by the way, I applauded the we want to move away and have a private life. What I don't applaud is ever since we moved away and have a private life, every single move is being monitored. Uh, either by them or by the press. And as you rightly say, mm, is it really news? Is it really news? I'm not sure. This week, the big issue has been the naming of the baby by calling it Lilibet. And worse, had they asked the Queen's permission because Lilibet was her nickname when she was a little girl. The hardcore right-wing press, the, the male, has been scathing about not seeking permission. The left-wing press, the Mirror, uh, well, it'll sell papers, so they've been slightly more sympathetic, uh, not so critical, but made a big play of it. And it's front page every single day. BBC News, at least, you know, you've done well this week not to have a Meghan Harry story on the BBC News in the first 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, the debate here is on different subjects, so I haven't heard of anyone talking about the name and the, the rationale for the name. What has happened here is that Meghan has changed the agenda of the royal family. When people talk about Meghan and, and, and Harry, it's always followed by, do you think the royal family is racist? Do you think that they should do more on mental health issues? Actually, what she has managed to do, at least for some of the people that I've talked to, what's being discussed about the royal family is slightly different. And do you think that was on their agenda, by the way? Since we're now talking about her, so she's got us into that space. Do you think that was a deliberate or that's just happened as a result of certain press coverage, cause or effect? Well, I don't know. And obviously, I don't know Meghan and Harry. But this is how what I think is probably happening. I think what's probably happening is that there is an attempt to create a celebrity brand uh, around Meghan and Harry, creating something Kardashian, Oprah or Ellen around, um, you know, this brand of the two of them. And of course, their biggest asset is that they're related to monarchy. You know, many other people can call themselves the Queen of Beverly Hills or, you know, whatever, but they are actually part of, you know, the royal family. And I think this celebrity brand then leads to people being able to make money from this mix of technology investments, politics, social and philanthropy. And I think that is what is being attempted 
by Meghan to sort of create this brand to rival the Kardashians. What I don't know is how successful it's going to be. And I think initially that Harry and Meghan were, were pretty popular. But what we have seen since the, the Oprah interview is that her popularity in America has fallen. And in particular, amongst Trump voters. So two-thirds of Trump voters dislike her. They talk about her being self-centered, self-absorbed, entitled, money-grabbing. But on the other hand, the Democrats, particularly the younger Democrats, are much more positive. They're 72% of them are likely to be predisposed to like her and only 14% thinking negative thoughts about her. This attempt to create this brand is actually dividing America politically as, as so many other things have done. Gosh. I think in the UK, um, <clears throat> I don't think necessarily it goes in political lines, but I think the probably three quarters of the population, and I don't have any basis in this, by the way, are, very, are not in favour. They, they see them damaging the brand. And probably 25% say it as some of them, these are things we should be listening to, more credit for them. Um, I'll end on a positive note. I think he's being very outspoken on mental health issues, and I think that's a good mm-hmm. thing. That, as, as an issue, typically has not been in the UK. It's been seen as a weakness, um, and certainly having someone of such a high profile talking about his mental health issues and the death of his mother, I think, has, has, has really done a lot to get people to focus on those sort of issues. So it gets my tick in the box of that. But the rest of it, I do wish they would stop talking. You know, as you started talking about the name of the baby, all of them, parents not give me any money. Yeah. Hey, get on with your life. Yeah, yeah. If you are preparing for a vacation to the US, uh, and of course you can't come to the US at the moment because, uh, you know, unless you've got a US passport or a, a green card, then what I would suggest is that you bone up a little bit on the royal family. You know, don't be ignorant like me. Do know the names of William's children because you will be talking to Americans who know a lot more about the royal family than me. As always, Julian, good to spend time with you. Uh, I've enjoyed the podcast. I say to those who are listening, please, please, please write us a review, submit questions. We're happy to take questions, and we'll see you in about 10 days' time. Back to that star, on to that day.